Um, thank you that you have purposes and plans for each one of us individually and collectively. Thank you that uh, you will be speaking <coughs> through Simon as he goes and talks to those leaders about Israel and about the fact that you've not finished with Israel and, and that they are still your covenant people. And, and thank you, Father, for uh, the understanding that you've given him about that. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing through or in and through us, Lord, as we seek to uh, walk with you, the Son of Man, through this Gospel of Luke. And um, help us now, Lord, as we uh, go into chapter 9 and 10 to really understand what it is that you're trying to show us about what it means to walk with you and how walking with you will actually transform our lives. So I thank you, Father, for what you will do. And um, we praise you, Lord, and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, we're on to uh, chapter 9. Chapter 9 and chapter 10 are kind of joined, really, because in them, Luke will talk about uh, the characteristics of true discipleship. So he talks about what, what the lifestyle, or what are the characteristics of a disciple's lifestyle. He's really been talking that for, about that for a little while, but he's actually going to really zero in on some of the specific characteristics. Now, I'm sure that there are other characteristics. It's not that he talks about all of them, but in these two chapters, uh, there are um, seven or eight of them that he actually names, uh, or he, show, he, he has Jesus explain them, amplify them in different ways. So, um, but before we get into that, the, there are two decisions that I suppose you might say are crit critical in e for every human being. What are they? Two decisions for every human being. We choose to uh, follow the Lord Jesus. You choose Jesus. You choose to put your trust in him, believe in him. And the second decision? To be baptized. Mm. Actually, Angela's named them both in one decision, which is actually where I'm going with it, because... We have this, uh, in the Western Church, we have an understanding or a, or a thinking that says that we can decide to believe in Jesus, we can choose Jesus to put our trust in him or to believe in him, but we can later or never choose to be a disciple. So we separate that, one, that decision into two parts and we say, the first part, I, I have put my trust in Jesus. People describe it in this way often. I, I put my trust in Jesus but I didn't make him Lord until much later in my life. And the Bible doesn't know anything about that. The Bible has no, no two decisions. It has one decision. And if you want to say that there are two, what the Bible says is that the second decision to follow Jesus as a disciple confirms the first decision to have him as to believe in him. So if you don't make that choice to be a disciple that actually calls into question whether or not you actually believe in him. Because believing in Jesus means believing who he is and what he has done. And if you say you believe that, then that will automatically affect how you live. And so um, I had a question here. Do you think it's possible to decide yes to the first one and no to the second? And I've already answered it, and Angela answered it, actually, because she said to trust and to follow Jesus. Um, the two things are synonymous, actually. But the problem is we live in a church that doesn't seem to understand that. Um, so these, 
these chapters in Luke are crucial, really, because they do explain what the life of a disciple is like and, and what the characteristics are. And actually, as you go through the characteristics, what you see is you can't make yourself like this. You can't develop your own character as a, as a disciple. What will happen is your character will be formed by the work of the Holy Spirit in you, and these characteristics will become evident in your life. So it's a perfect way to look at your own life and say, am I following Jesus? Because these things are bound to happen in my life if I am. And it, that's interesting to me, because if I were to say to you, um, well, let's go through some of the characteristics and then we'll uh, see. Um, in Luke 9 and 10, um, Luke talks about, the as I say, the characteristics of a disciple's lifestyle. So you tell me, what would you think would be characteristics of the person who follows Jesus? What would be the first characteristic of a person who has put their, has come to faith in Jesus and decided to follow him? What would be the basis of their relationship? Love. Love, maybe. Before love, even though, I think that's right, but before that, even... What do you have to do when you put your faith in Jesus? What's another word for faith? Trust. Trust. You have to trust him. So a disciple's lifestyle, a characteristic of a disciple, actually, I think, is fundamentally one of trust. You trust God. You trust Jesus. You trust him when you don't understand anything about your circumstances, and you trust yes. him when you know everything about your circumstances. You basically trust him with your life. And that will show as you as you walk through life. Mm -hmm. It will show as you go through difficult times and it will actually show as you go through good times because you won't forget that he's still the one you trust in the good times. Okay, so that's the first one. Give me another characteristic. Um, Mike said love. I think love is also a characteristic. It's not on my list, but it is one of them, <laughs> which I think Luke will talk about later. Steadfastness. Yeah, perseverance. Yeah, commitment. I've got commitment down as a same sort of thing, that you really are committed to him because of who he is. It's a, it's a lifestyle of commitment, and your life will show commitment uh, or steadfastness. Or Yeah, exactly. What's another one? There's no wrong answers because, I mean, love is a, is a characteristic. Response and action, yes. Okay, so I've, I've, I've used the word involvement for that, involvement in the Lord's plans and purposes, which is a response to him and an action, actually, because you are involving yourself in or being involved in the Lord's plans. Because it says, if you love me, you will obey Yes, yes. But that's more a choice, isn't it? If you love me, you will obey. So it's something you do. Mm. What I'm saying is that involvement in the plans and purposes of Jesus is a natural outcome of someone who follows Christ. If you're following Christ, you can't help but be involved in what he's doing. So it's not something that you actually choose, it's something that you find happening in you. Commitment. It's If you are following Jesus, and if he is who he says he is, and if he becomes more and more to you what he says he is, he is and, and what he's done, your commitment is not something that you have to choose, it will be something that just happens. Um, so, okay, so trust, commitment, involvement, purpose also, your purpose will become his purpose. It's the same sort of thing as the commitment and the... 
Um, I've got suffering in there. Um, following Jesus yes. is, a, is a life of suffering in some ways. It's hard. I don't mean suffering persecution necessarily or suffering um, sickness or trials, but, but suffering to follow him. Suffering is, is part of following Jesus. Mm. It's not easy to follow Christ mm. all the time. It might be easy sometimes, but it's not easy. But the suffering is part and parcel of the, the character or the lifestyle of a disciple. And then I have humility. Um, humility is a characteristic of the lifestyle of a disciple. Because the more that you follow Christ, the more that you see, you have no right to be following him at all. The more that you get to know him, the more that you see, wow, I am so far from where he is and I am so far from where I should be. And that humility is not just vertical between you and Christ, it also becomes horizontal between you and everybody else because the closer you go to Jesus, the more you follow him, the more you understand about your own condition and the less judgment there is horizontally to your brothers and sisters and the more understanding of the fact that actually I should uh, be to them as as I want to, them to be to me. And I actually should put them first mm. in my thinking. Mm. Um, and it doesn't come as something that you, you automatically think of. It becomes something that you find yourself doing. So submission to one another, for example, which is Paul's submit yourselves to one another, that comes out of, that's not something you have to do. It's something you find yourself doing because you're following Christ. Now that's not true all the time. I'm not saying that that actually happens all the time because we're fighting a battle with ourselves. We're always at war with our flesh and our flesh definitely doesn't want to consider other people higher than ourselves. Our flesh wants us to be the most important one and my feelings the most important feelings and my rights the most important rights. And so I'm constantly at war with the spirit within me. And, but what the Gospels tell us and what the New Testament tells us is if Christ is in you by his spirit, you will be winning that war by the spirit of God. And so you will find that you are submitting to one another, that someone else's well-being becomes as important, sometimes more important, than your own. And that's not just those people that you love because they're part of your family. That's uh, your earthly family. That's those people that you love because they're part of the family of God. Mm. And so these things are happening uh, in you and they're happening because of a decision you make to follow Christ. So, um, so let's, if we get into chapter 9, um, he's, Jesus is going to send out uh, the 12 disciples. <coughs> In chapter 10, he's going to send out 70 or 72 others. Um, at the beginning of chapter 10, you read that he sends, commissions the 70 to go out in the same way he commissions the 12. We know the names of the 12, but we don't know the names of the 70. Do they include some of the women that Luke has mentioned in Luke chapter 8? I don't know, but certainly we don't know their names. And that's interesting on so many levels, but particularly interesting on the fact that if God were to write a book about the church now, he probably wouldn't write all our names down in it. 
Do you see what I mean if we were writing the Bible? But that doesn't mean that we would not be sent out with the same authority and power as those uh, first 12 disciples. And that's what I think Luke is showing us here. This gospel is the gospel for every human being. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. This is the gospel for that, for humankind. Not that Matthew and John and Mark aren't, but their focus is a different focus. Um, so anyway, Luke chapter 9, verse 1 to 6. Could someone read those verses, please? One day Jesus called together his 12 apostles and gave them power and authority to cast out demons and to heal all diseases. Mm. Then he sent them out to tell everyone about the coming of the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Don't even take along a walking stick, he instructed them, nor a traveller bag, nor food, nor money, not even an extra coat. When you enter each village, be a guest in only one home. If the people of the village won't receive your message, when you enter it, shake off its dust from your feet as you leave. It is a sign that you have abandoned the village to its fate. So they began their circuit of the villages, preaching the good news and healing the sick. Thank you. Okay, what, were the, um, what was the particular and specific assignment of those 12 disciples? What did Jesus send them out to do? Demons and all diseases. Yeah, um, he actually sent them to do two things. He gave them authority over the demons, mm. so they were able to do that. But he, their assignment was actually preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. And in order to do that, they would have had to have the authority and power over the demons. They would not have been able to do their to fulfil their assignment without that power. So Jesus is telling them. Luke's telling us that there is another enemy apart from our own flesh, which we haven't got to yet, um, to talk about the fleshly uh, enemy. But there is an enemy and his name is Satan and his demons do not want the gospel preached. They do not want us to preach the gospel and talk about the kingdom of God. They definitely don't. And they are actively involved against us. So here um, they had to have authority, but that wasn't the focus of their mission. The focus was simply preach the gospel, proclaim the kingdom of God, and heal the sick. Um, healing the sick, what place would that have in, in their mission? What place did it have in Jesus' mission? When he healed the sick, what was he healing the sick for? For what reason? Confirming who he was. It was a confirmation of who he was. So he was actually confirming his message. Yes. And that's the same for the disciples. Healing the sick was a confirmation of the message they preached about the kingdom of God. Why was it a message? Why was healing the sick and actually also casting out demons? Why would that proclaim the authenticity of the message? It's a, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Exactly. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Yes. When the Messiah came, he would cast out demons and heal the sick. And they would have seen that. Exactly. This is to the Jews. This ministry is to the Jews. They go, he's going out in Israel. They would expect, if they are going to talk about Jesus being the Messiah, what they would want proof of that. And the proof was that he, they would heal the sick in his name and the demons would not be able to stand in front of them and they would flee. So you can't necessarily take 
casting out demons and healing the sick as a necessary sign that we're going to have that authenticates our message because we live in a Gentile world with no knowledge of necessarily the Old Testament prophecies about because Messiah. They were um, uh, wanting to proclaim him king. Yes. He came in and so they would know yes. the, uh, that the scriptures um, exactly. they were going to um, exactly. provide a Messiah. Yeah. And also I think that... Um, that he gives them a direct commandment, so none of them are in any doubt yeah. as to what their mission exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And there's a lot of doubt, isn't there, in the yes. church today about what our mission yes, is. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah. And I think that that's probably, which we'll see a bit later, is probably because we are getting our mission from other believers or other people rather than directly from the Son of God. Mm. So. Um, yeah, so I think that that's something, the, all these things I think are really important for us to understand. This is a mission in Israel to Jews. So for example, Jesus is going to say to them, go to one house where you find, and if they let you in, stay there the whole time. And then if they don't receive your message, move on and shake the dust off your feet. What does that mean? Why is he telling them, shake the dust off your feet? I mean, does that mean that, okay, we give the gospel to someone, and if they say, no, I don't believe, we say, right, I'm done with you, I'm off. Can we transplant it that way? No. So what does it mean for that? I think it might be a deliberate action to the householder so that the householder would not be in any ignorance as to why they were there. I think there's possibly that to it. But also it was interesting to find out that when the Jews had been to a Gentile nation and they came back into Israel, they literally shook the dust of the Gentile nation off their feet. So what Jesus is saying when he says, shake the dust off your feet, he's saying, these are like Gentiles to you now. So, I mean, the Gentiles to the Jews were kind of like, you know, unclean. Yeah. So that was the division they made. So what Jesus is trying to say is, just because a person is a Jew, if they don't receive me, then they are to be like Gentiles to you. This is, is this echoing? Yeah. Could you possibly turn it down, Rosie, or something? Thank you. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. We have to turn it down. Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay, so, um, so what he's saying is shake the dust of your feet to signify that you're breaking ties with them and that and actually what they're doing is they are refusing Messiah. That's mm. the thing. And, they, and he wanted them to know it. Um, yes. They went all over the villages, he says. They went... Um, sorry, there's sign language going on behind yeah, you. Right, so yeah. no, no, it's okay. Yeah. Is that Mike is talking to that speaker? Ah. Okay, is that better? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Four and a half You have to say we are so sophisticated in our eyes <laughs> aren't we? I mean let's face it. <laughs> so um, so Jesus is uh, telling them this is an urgent mission. They are to go out as fast as they can. They're not to take anything with them that might slow them down. They're to go and rely on the people that they visit. And the way that they, the people they visit 
would show that they had received the message that these people, these men had come in the name of Jesus was they would feed them and house them. And then they would start to, to proclaim this, this kingdom to their own village. They were only to stay in one house. They were to proclaim the message from one house. So there's this idea of if people do receive you, they're receiving me. If they don't receive you, you need to kick this, shake the dust off your feet because they'll be like Gentiles who are refusing, um, who are refusing me. Thank you, Rosie. Um, so uh, we know because um, in verse 7 we read, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said... I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. So uh, Luke doesn't really do much about Herod. He just says to us that Herod had heard about this. But the point he's making is that in their short mission, everybody heard about Jesus. Everybody was given the opportunity, at least in that area, to make a choice about Jesus. And Herod was still afraid, wasn't yeah. he? Because you remember he had all the the children yeah. killed, so he's still afraid of his position. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if this is the same Herod. I'm not sure if oh, it I might be his mean. son. Yes. It may be. I don't know, but not that it would matter because I'm sure his son would know about the first one. Yeah. But um, but I think what we we are shown is that um, is that the whole area heard about Jesus and had an opportunity to believe people in high high positions people in low positions and um and then when they came back jesus is going to it says but in verse 11 but the crowds were aware of this sorry verse 10 when the apostles returned they gave an account to him jesus of all that they had done taking them with him he withdrew by himself to a city called bethsaida but the crowds were aware of this and followed him and welcoming them he began speaking to them about the kingdom of god and curing those who had need of healing. So um, uh, it seems like the apostles returned to Capernaum, first of all, and then, as usual, the crowds were following him, and then they moved on. Um, and uh, when they move on, he's still continuing, Jesus is still continuing to heal, um, but then we're going to come to what is probably the biggest miracle it's recorded in all four gospels the feeding of the 5,000 men which meant about 10,000 people probably so could somebody read 12 to 17 please verse 12 to 17 when the day began to wear away the 12 came and said to him send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, <coughs> unless you go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. Then he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of fifty. Gosh. And they did so, and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and the twelve baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. 
Thank you. Okay. I mean, we all know this this miracle fairly well. Um, there's lots of things in it, I, I think, that we could probably spend hours talking about. Mm -hmm. But um, what do you think the main points are? I mean, the first thing is that Jesus, they say to Jesus, the disciples say, there's all these people here, and, you know, they're going to be hungry. So basically, all those people here, there can't have come from villages very close, because they would have gone back to their own village to get their own provisions. So they must have come quite a distance to follow him. Secondly, Jesus is going to tell them, the disciples, to feed them. Yes, he says, you give them something to eat. Um, uh, he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. So what do you think Luke wants us to know? What do you think God wants us to know in that statement? You know. Their thinking is temporal. I mean, yeah. they just come back from this wonderful experience. Yeah. In verse 11, it says, And when the apostles returned, they told him what great things they had yeah. done. Yeah. And they seem to have forgotten it already. Yes, mm -hmm. certainly. So what's the point there, then? What do you think the point is that um, Luke is making? I mean, you're saying it, but say it in another well, way. for the next great thing. <coughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. They haven't yet learned to trust. Faith, you know, maybe the yeah. trusting is coming in. But I think what uh, what Jesus is showing them is, you can't do this. Ah. You can't do this. You've just come back from a mission where you've healed the sick, you've preached the word, you've found demons going, but you are unable to provide what these people need. Mm -hmm. And there's so much in that statement. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's so much in that. He says to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, they recognize we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all the people and so what Jesus will do now is is show he is the only one who can provide mm. for all these people mm. what they need yes. and that's what he does in fact the disciples never did that did they Ever. no 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 only Jesus only Jesus and and it's a massive thing for us because the teaching in our church is that we can do what Jesus did. And even his disciples, whom he had just authorized, could not do what Jesus did. So you individually cannot do what Jesus did. If you could, you'd be God. But you're not. You have Christ within you. They didn't have Christ within them. But even so, they, we have Christ within us. Collectively, we can do Think great and mighty things. Individually, maybe God through you will do great and mighty things, but in and of yourself, you are totally powerless. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing the creator God here, yeah, aren't we? Exactly. Actually creating, creating food out of nothing. <coughs> yeah. yeah, well, at least taking a little bit and making it, yeah. yeah. Um, I think it, it proves something to them. They will cast their mind back to Elisha, who kept feeding, kept, That's you know, right. with the example of uh, with the widow, I think, and he kept um, bringing all this food for, forth for her, or oil, I think. I can't remember which one. I'm getting two things mixed up. But, um, so, so it was in humanly impossible to satisfy the crowd. Only he could do it, and he did it. And after he did it, and they'd fed all these people, there were 12 baskets left over. What do you think that might be? I mean, I'm sure it's lots of things, but what what might that be? One for each abundance. tribe. One for each tribe, certainly. Hmm? And the abundance. Abundance, yeah. But he is more Press than sufficient. Yeah. yeah, more than sufficient. Um, so, okay. Um, 
so the people that have, were following him, what have they seen so far about Jesus? Or from Jesus, what have they seen? These are crowds that have been following him. What have they seen? Well, he tells wonderful stories. He does amazing teaching. Yeah. Teaching. Healing. Yeah. Um, provision. Yeah. Yeah. They've seen him actually provide proof that he is who he's saying he is. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt. He's just fed people out of nothing. He, he's casting out demons. He's empowering his disciples to do that. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's saying, basically saying to them, I am the Messiah that you have been waiting for. And the interesting thing is that Luke, who's, who's written his gospel in consecutive order, is now going to have Jesus, or is going to record Jesus saying to his disciples, who do people say that I am? on the basis of the fact that he has just spent time, they have followed him and seen that he is doing what Messiah was supposed to do. So the question is loaded. It's a really loaded question. Who do people say that I am? Because the answer should have been, well, they say you're the Messiah, of course. But they don't. So they come back, he comes back with the... Um, uh, with the answer that it happened while, that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Uh-huh. And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So, interesting really, um, why were they not to say anything? Why did the crowd seemingly just not understand who he was, even though he provided proof of who he was? Um, But basically it comes down, the question is the same to each one of us always, isn't it? Who do you say that Jesus is? Mm. Who do you say that he is? Yeah. Um, is the Christ of God actually saying Messiah? Yeah, it is. It's, it's Messiah of God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Messiah of God. Mm. Yeah. Um, Matthew will record it in a slightly different way, um, mm. and he will come. Matthew will record that Peter says, "You know, um, blessed are you, Simon Barjana, for this was not revealed yeah. to you by man, but by my Father in heaven." <coughs> um, so this is a revelation of God to the disciples that this is who Jesus is. And this is a revelation that obviously was not revealed to the crowds that had followed. And the question is, why not? Are we going to say that God only revealed that this is the Christ to the Messiah, to, sorry, to the disciples, or are we going to say something else? What, what's the answer to that? Back to the hearing, they will not hear and see. Yeah, see I think it definitely is. Yeah. Mm. I'm sure there's more. <laughs> Even though it was revealed to the disciples, they still didn't fully understand no. until after no. the coming of the Holy Spirit. Correct, but what had they done? They didn't fully understand, but what had they done? They'd followed. They'd followed and they'd chosen to put their trust in him. Peter asked a direct question, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ, 
of God. You are the Messiah. Did he understand everything about Jesus? No. Did he know what was going to happen to Jesus? No. Did he, he, but he had made his choice. And presumably, when the disciples went out, when he sent them out to heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God, there were some that believed. We don't know, but there were, because what would be the point in, in proclaiming the kingdom of God if no one was ever going to, to, to believe? So we have to assume that there were people who believed, and certainly in the gospel, there are lots of people who, who believe Jesus mm. is. Mm. Most unlikely um, people. Exactly, the most unlikely people. I think it depends, if I may say, what that belief is, because Jesus said to yeah. Peter, it's the Holy Spirit that's revealed it to you. Yes. So whether the Holy Spirit was able to reveal the truth of um, Christ being the Messiah when they went out, I don't know. Well, I'd have to I ask, first of all, it wasn't the Spirit, it was the Father. Blessed oh, are you because my Father is revealed to me. No, no, yeah. don't. It's just that if it's the Spirit, it's something we have yeah. to think about in a long, different line. But, but also, what would be the point in them going out if there was no possibility? I think in Scripture, there is always the possibility for people to believe. Mm -hmm. Because the statement in Scripture is not that we cannot believe, but that we will not. Mm -hmm. That's all through the Gospels. It's that they would not believe, well, not that they couldn't. Even here, they, uh, they still reflect on people that they've known uh, in history and, and just recently with John the Baptist Christ, to try and yes. position who That's he Herod, is. That's who he is, yeah. Yes. So they are making a choice all the time. Mm. Herod, for example, is making a choice. Is he John the Baptist? No, he can't be John the Baptist because I beheaded him. Is this Elijah? Yes. You know, who, who is this? So it's not out of ignorance. Yeah. It's out of knowledge that these people are making the choice because Jesus has done exactly what he was foretold to do, promised that he would do. That would be carnal knowledge, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, Spiritual definitely. Knowledge. No, but you, bef but you have to make a choice, mm. carnally in a way, mm. before, uh, to, to put your trust in Jesus. Mm. Now how that works, I mean it's very complicated and, um, but, well, but if... do it, he meets you, doesn't he? Exactly, he does, but you are not absolved of responsibility. No. He just doesn't dump belief on you. No. I know there's some people who believe that, but I don't believe that and I don't think the scripture backs it up. God doesn't come and say, Caroline, here's the belief. Right. And then now, will you believe in me? Well, of course, because you've just had this belief dumped in your heart. I don't believe that he does, I don't think that he does it that, that way. It, it is, and I'm not a Calvinist. But, but I, I think there is a meeting, as Angela says, but definitely every single person has the possibility of believing. Otherwise, why would God hold us accountable for not believing? Um, so, I'm sure they did. Absolutely, I'm sure they did. The ones who were really seeking. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And the band of disciples wasn't just the twelve. They were twelve chosen out of a lot of disciples, and he chose them through a whole night of prayer. So there were lots of other people following him, presumably going along trying to see who is this guy, who is he, and coming to, to trust him. Um, the fact that they all run away at his crucifixion is more about their fear of their personal safety than whether or not they trusted him. Because, of course, at that time they didn't have the Holy Spirit, so um, they wouldn't have had the staying power that perhaps we have now. Because he even climbed a tree yeah, to see him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so... Um, 
So Christ came, he demonstrated who he was in the world, and, but he was, he, was still, he was rejected by most people, but some believed. And um, what Jesus will do now is move on to tell them, okay, this is what it means to believe. Because he's going to say, I don't want you to tell anyone, because the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. I think that what Jesus does is immediately link, you've just said I'm the Christ, okay, this is what it means to believe that I'm the Christ. This is how your life is going to be. You are going to have to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. And I think we in the Western world, in our nice 21st century, we minimise that all the time. Well, he didn't quite mean that. I mean, he didn't mean, you know, he didn't mean, it doesn't mean that I've got to go through the hard things, or I've got to do this, or I've got to get rid of that. I didn't mean that. That was for then. For now, it just means I've got to live a good life. I've got to go to church on Sunday. I've got to be kind to my neighbours. You know. So I think we need to pick up, up what does it mean to deny myself, pick up my cross daily, and follow Christ? Because he says, that's the way I save my life. That's the way my soul is saved. That's the way of following him. So what does it mean to, um, to deny myself. Let's just backtrack a little bit. What's the focus of the whole Gospel of Luke? We said right at the beginning, I said there's a main focus of the Gospel of Luke. There's a word that describes what Luke will write about. Can you remember? You probably can't. Um, Luke's, the whole of Luke's Gospel, I think, can be summed up in the word transformation. This is transformation. These believers went, or these people who followed him, went from not knowing anything about him, to being totally and utterly transformed. By the end of Luke, they are transformed people. Um, and it's that that he's talking about. As a Christian, you receive a new life from God. You, re- you know, um, Paul will say, won't he, in Second Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has gone, the new has come. So you receive a new life. But in order to, re- when you have received that life, in order to follow him, you have to deny yourself. Because when you receive the new life, the new life doesn't automatically do everything for you. Do you know what I mean? You receive the new spirit. He, you are a new creation. You have a new man and an old man. They're still battling in the same body. So when Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, what does he mean? I mean, just a bit earlier, he said, be like your father. Be like your heavenly father. And everybody should have said, what? How, can, how is that possible? So how is it possible that they can be like their father? How is it possible that you and I can be like our father? How is that possible? Being transformed by the washing of the water. Yes. I was just thinking about 
with, with me and having to give up sugar and good. Yeah. It's a bit like that. I have to give it up or I can go down the path, yeah. basically. Yeah. And it's the same with Jesus. You have to follow him and decide that's the way to go because he's talking the truth. Yeah. Or you go down the path. Yeah. Yeah. You have to make that decision. Yeah. That this is the way to go. Yeah. And again, it's the battle of the self nature, isn't it? Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's it. Because you don't just say, right, I'm giving up sugar, and then that's it. Miraculously, it's done. Every day, and sometimes every half an hour, you have to say, no, I'm giving up sugar. Yeah. I'm not having that. It's a perfect example because this is a battle that you're now in. Yeah. And in order to be like, made into the character of Christ, be transformed into the image of Jesus, you must fight that battle. And you have to fight it because he fought it. Yes. He said over and over and over again, I've come to do the will of my Father. I've, I only do what I see him do. I only say what I hear him say. And when you get to Gethsemane, what he says is, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Yes. Denying self, picking up your cross, picking up your cross daily is you deciding every day, I'll live for the will of God. I'll live by his will rather than my own. Every day, pick up your cross daily. It's not you've got a difficult wife or a difficult husband or difficult circumstances or, or you're unhealthy or you're, you know, your monetary uh, situation is bad. That's not a cross. Everybody, everyone who's human suffers those things. That's not your cross. Your cross is, will you do the will of your father? And that's a heavy load to carry because you don't want to. Mm. You don't. Your human nature will rebel against that all the time. And that will take a work of the spirit in you. And, so, and it won't be, he won't just dump it on you. Like he didn't just dump faith on you. He's going to ask you to go along with that. Go ahead, Rosie, sorry. I was just thinking, is that the delusion in the church? Because the Definitely. church thinks they are. Yes. They have given it all up, and there isn't anything else. I'm doing everything he asked, but actually they're not. No. And they delude themselves, and therefore that's why they're asleep. Mm. And um, probably not growing. Mm. I think it's, it's so hard to generalise. I mean, it's, it's a big generalisation to, to say that, you know. not to believe that truth. It just seems to me to be a deception. Yes, it it's is a like deception. It is. Yeah. It is a deception. And the thing is, what we do, because, because instinctively is a rebellion. Mm. We instinctively rebel yeah. about the things God wants us to do. But, so what we do is, we, we make the things he wants us to do like the big things. Yeah. You know what I mean? In yes. terms of world issues like climate change or, or, or you know, uh, trafficking or something but the little things like i'm not going to get drunk on a friday night or and i'm not i'm going to curb my anger and i'm going to not i'm going to learn patience i'm going to control myself those are little things that we hide in the big things well i am doing this ministry and i am going here and i am you know i'm in that prayer group and we're praying for this we do all the things that are easy for us to do to cover up all the things that are hard for us to do yes. and that makes us exactly like the pharisees yes. exactly like the pharisees and that's what we have we have a church that's religious and rules based and th and those people can be in everywhere that's no particular denomination that's everywhere We've got this set of rules and we do these things and that makes us right. So it doesn't really matter that I'm still angry all the time. 
that I've got bitterness or unforgiveness or any of those things. Because they're the tiny things. I mean, God will get that. He'll sort that. He'll sort that out. And so we hide our struggle and our rebellion underneath the cloak of respectability. Beware of the foxes, isn't it? Yeah. And, and that's what he's saying here. This is an individual decision to give up your will for God's will. It's an individual decision every day. Will you choose to live his way? And I, I mean in the small things. I don't necessarily mean in the big things. The big things will follow the small things, not the other way around. So, and I think this is hard for them. It's hard for them, it's hard for us. So, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Christ. So, that's the acid test, actually. It's not the test you can make on someone else, because you can't see the little things in their lives that they're not dealing with, or they're not submitting or surrendering. You can only see the big things, and they look like, you know, the Pharisees look like respectable people. Good Jewish men. They're doing the right things. They're taking their offerings. They're going to the temple on the right at the right day and the right time. But but Jesus could see their hearts, and He can see yes. our hearts. And it's the small things in our hearts that we call small that He says are the big things that differentiate. Um, we uh, look at the cross and see the pain, the agony, and uh, the the. Uh, degrading uh, experience. <clears throat> I wonder what the Jew actually felt about such a death. Mm. I think the same thing, to be honest. I wonder if it was more than that. Maybe. Uh, to me, no, maybe. You know, because of their um, religious yes, maybe. Um, history, concept, mm. understanding. Mm, maybe. Mm. I don't know, but mm. probably, because they had a lot of, lots of things were wrapped up in it all, weren't they? Mm. Um, so the sort of death you died, yeah, with the ceremony yes. and that sort of thing, yes. as as they should have been. Yeah. So I wonder whether this was more than the the what we think about it. Maybe. So when he's asking them to take your cup of your cross and follow me, then mm. it's it's uh, much more of a challenge mm. than it is to, to us. Yeah. Possibly. Although I think it, I think that the challenge is, I think if you think in big terms, like Peter did die apparently upside down on the cross, yes. mm. he was crucified. And so, and I'm not trying to say Peter struggled with things, but he did struggle with things because he was human. He struggled to, to live like a Christian in front of the Jews that came because Paul had to say to him, you used to eat with the Gentiles, but now you're not. So in the little things, he was obviously struggling, as we struggle, to deny himself. And um, so, yeah, I don't want to belittle him, though, because, I mean, you know... Um, but I think that the surrender aspect of discipleship is a really a, a tremendously difficult thing for us to do. But I think it's something that has to be done every day, actually. I mean, we can surrender in one big swoop. You know, I surrender my life to God. And we mean it. I'm not saying we don't mean it. But that surrender is confirmed in the everyday surrender, that I will be kind. I, you know, I will not take offence. I will forgive. I'll forgive even when they don't deserve forgiveness. Mm. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll choose the things that will that I know Christ chose, and I'll deliberately choose them, no matter how difficult that is for me. I um, will be in the world, but not of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Is there a nugget in the fact that he's talking about taking up the cross before he was crucified? Maybe, maybe. But I think he's I think he's talking about this is what you'll have to do when you follow me, when I'm not here. I think he's knowing what he has to do. Yeah, because he's going to he said before this, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and raised up on the third day. So he's now saying, and if you want to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. So yeah. I think he's definitely looking beyond the cross and saying, this is the life of a disciple. Um, and denying yourself, you know, when we think about denying ourselves, we, we, it doesn't mean, you know, rejecting ourselves or self-loathing. I mean, there's enough of that anyway. When, when the Lord starts to show you what you're really like, you know, you can end up in a heap. But it's not that. It is literally choosing to forgive when someone, you know, when someone hasn't even, um, hasn't even asked for your forgiveness. It's forgiving them when they don't deserve forgiveness. Hurts you yes, again. and when it's someone else's fault, mm-hmm. when it's their fault, mm-hmm. but still forgiving them, it's it's literally it's going against everything in our own humanness and choosing to do the other thing. Um, he's he's showing infinite patience as well as yeah. through the whole chapter yeah. here knowing what he's going to face himself. Exactly, and getting them ready for what they're going to have to do to go, be, to go on. And the thing is, make no mistake, if they said no to this, there'd be no church. We wouldn't be here. If those disciples had decided, you know what, this is too hard, I mean, there wouldn't be a church. As some did, didn't they? Yeah, in John some, 6, yeah, yes, some walked away. Some walked away Just from his teaching, you know. You go also, mm. didn't you? Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, and I think because we are as we are, we justify ourselves all the time. We find reasons that we can't do things. They sound good and they sound right, and we hide behind that justification. Why can't I forgive you? Why can't I be kinder? Why am I not more patient? Why cannot I? Cont- why I can't control things? You know, um, if you knew how difficult my life was, you wouldn't ask me to do that. If you knew how terrible my wife, my husband was, you wouldn't ask me to forgive. If you knew what they'd done, you would never expect me to forgive them. They're, they're the things that we do. We justify ourselves all the time for not doing what this is calling us to do. And as I say, it's in the small things. Well, relatively small. It's in the things people can't see that we do it most. Um, so self-denial is choosing to live as the new person. Taking up your cross is giving, surrendering to the will of God you know, every day. And then the third thing, follow me. So, so it's deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. And actually I was looking that up. The Living Bible translates that as keep close to me. Because actually you hear those first two things and you think, I cannot do that. I know that I will not be able to deny myself and pick up this cross. I won't be able to do that. And so Jesus says, keep close to me. Keep close to me. And that's the only way you will be able to do this, to live this life. How can we ever find the strength to live this way? Only by staying close to Christ. Yes. Not just that he lives within us. Because that's a promise that he will fulfill. The Spirit will come and live within us and enable us. Give us the power to do it. But if you don't stay close to Christ, 
you won't even want to do it. So staying close to Christ will keep you up, straight up, really close, face to face. Here's Jesus. He's your incentive. He's the one you want to be transformed into the image of. He's the one calling you closer, calling you on. But if you let him sit in the corner and you go your own way, it'll become more and more and more difficult. Even though you have the power within by the Spirit, it'll become more and more. So stay close to me, follow me, stay with me. And can mm. I just say that it's interesting, isn't it, that the church general has elevated into such a position that there is a, 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 a um, almost a huge gap between him and us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. yeah. And I actually think it, you're right in the way that you've described it, but actually what we've essentially done is denigrated him so that he has this... If, I, if it's impossible for me to get near to him, then everything he said is not true. And he is not who he says he is. If he says, follow me, and it's not possible for me to follow him and get close to him, then that's a lie, isn't it? It's, it's something that's not possible, and therefore, why would he call me to it? Um, so it's actually the reverse. I think that what we've done, although it looks like we might have done that, I think we've actually elevated ourselves and denigrated Christ. I was thinking of problem. rude screens and those mm. kind of things in the high altar and a place where we cannot go. Yeah. Uh, unless we're ordained, yeah. etc. Yeah. And we're we're the we're the laity. Yeah. Uh, and we're kept. There. Oh, definitely, yeah. Because that's Old Testament religion. Mm. Yeah, Old Testament religion. Um, because actually, the scribes and the Pharisees didn't want a God who would walk in the mud with the normal yeah. local people. Mm-hmm. They didn't want a God who was ordinary. Mm-hmm. They didn't want someone who would just um, come to the, the weak and the lowly. and the, that's, not, that's not the Messiah they wanted. And so they rejected him because he didn't fit the bill. Sinners and tax collectors. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Jesus is going to go on. Um, he says... Uh, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed um, of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Um, uh, what do you think he's talking about when he says that? Transfiguration. Yeah, I think he's talking about the transfiguration, to be honest. Mm-hmm that three of the disciples will see him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, There could be other things that he means. There's lots of different interpretations about it. And, you know, I'm not saying that this is the right one. I'm saying that it's possibly the right one because um, it says straight away, some eight days after these these saying, he took along Peter and James and went up onto the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So I think that because the transfiguration follows so soon after those words, I think that that must be what Jesus meant. Um, So, um, let's go on a little bit then. I said right at the beginning that Luke's Gospel is showing us all the time how to be a disciple, and Jesus has actually said here, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. But now I think he's going to amplify 
what that's going to look like in your life. And it's going to bring us back to those things we talked about at the beginning, trust, humility, suffering, those things. So would someone read verse, um, uh, let's say, um, where are we? Verse 37. Uh, yeah, 37, please, to 43. I know that we're not talking about, I haven't read the um, Peter wanting to make the tabernacles. That's all very, it's interesting, but we haven't got enough time to do it all. So someone read 37 to 43, please. On the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him, and a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And the spirit seizes him and suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, warming, as it, warming him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I go put up with you? Bring your son here. And by the still approaching, demons slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Thank you. Okay, so this is the very next day. Um, Peter, James and John come down from the mountain with Jesus. And there, as they come down into this place, they find the other disciples and a group of people, a man with a son who's demon-possessed, and the disciples, the other disciples have not been able to cast out the demon. Um, this is really kind of odd because... The, a little bit earlier, they'd gone out on this healing mission to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal and cast out demons. So it is very odd that they're not able to do that now. And so um, Jesus says, you know, uh, you unbelieving and perverted generation. He's, I don't know, is he talking only to his disciples or is he talking to everybody? I think probably to all of them. But it made me think about, because I want to move that from that time to our time, to think about what are the lessons then that we can learn about us as disciples. And one of the things I asked myself was, do we ask from other people what we should be asking from God? So this, this man had gone to the disciples of Jesus rather than to Jesus, because he wasn't there at the time. But... They, he was asking from the disciples what he should have only asked from Jesus. Now, I'm not saying all the reasons he did that, maybe they were all good reasons, but he still was asking something that the disciples couldn't do, only God could do, only Jesus could do. And I, that really struck me, because how many times do I go to other believers rather than asking from God? I mean, you know, let's say we wouldn't want to admit that. We'd all want to say we go straight to God immediately with all our things. But often we don't. Often we go to disciples or to other believers to ask for things that actually only God can do. Only God can help with. Only God can fix. So that was the first thing. And also the second thing was, a, a kind of not necessarily related to the first thing, but are other people's, is other people's faith weakened by my inability to live for Christ? Are they weakened by my weak witness? Mm -hmm. These disciples technically should have been able to do this, but they were unable to do it. Now, for whatever reason, I don't know. 
But is my weakness a witness, a bad witness to, uh, for other people? Because this man definitely was in despair, it says. Can I just say, in the mm. first instant, they were all commissioned by the Lord. They were, to go definitely, out, yes. And they came back, so that commission, if you like, was had finished. Completed. Yes, finished. yes, yes. And uh, if they could all do it, if you see what I mean, then it would have, would it have taken away from the, the messiahship of Christ? Yeah. Maybe. Because that because it, yes. that time hadn't arrived yet. Yes. Many miracles were done afterwards, weren't yes. they? Yes, yeah. maybe. Mm. It was interesting to me, though, on this, because, you know, when, especially in the Western Church, what is one of the biggest um, criticisms of the Western Church? Too comfortable. Well, yeah, no, from outside. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy and irrelevance. Yeah. Hypocrisy. What do they mean when people say we're hypocrites? What do they mean? We don't walk the talk. Exactly. We don't practice what we preach. We yeah. don't walk the talk. Mm -hmm. That's what these disciples, it seems like, were mm -hmm. doing. For whatever reason. And you're probably right, uh, Mike. They had finished their commission. Mm -hmm. so, uh, and Jesus was up on the mountain. So, um, but, but if we don't walk the, what we talk, we actually encourage unbelief around us mm. and actually that's what we've done in the church in the west we've got lot thousands millions maybe of people looking at the church and seeing an institution or a group of people who look like hypocrites and who actually have no strength and it causes unbelief it's not just that we don't witness for Christ and don't bring people to believe. It's that we're actually exacerbating their own unbelief. <coughs> How many times have people said, well, I, you know, I went to that church, but I'm an honest there. They were just horrible. They were just horrible there. And really, if someone came into your home, if they knocked on your door at midnight and, and needed something, you know, what would be your response? These are, this man needed something desperately from these disciples and they couldn't deliver for whatever reason. Now Jesus does, he comes down and he, he heals this, he casts out the demon. But he doesn't have, it's not a, oh well don't worry you weren't able to do it. It's you wicked, unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I be with you and put up with you? So this is, yeah, this is a, you know, this is a criticism. So, you know, what will I take of that, from that? I and wonder what Judas thought of that. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, what actually should the disciples have done, given all the different situations that might have been, what could the disciples have done? Let's say that rather than should. What could the disciples have done? The man comes to them with his de demonic son, demon-possessed son, and what could they have done? Time to wait. There. Will you just wait until wait. Jesus comes? Yeah. Will you just wait until the Saviour comes, the know, Messiah we know comes? That, uh, King Saul didn't wait for yes. the offering and yes. the battle was lost. Yes. Wasn't it? And the Holy yeah. Spirit left him at that time. Yeah. Because he took things into his yeah. own hands. So they've, they've got no Holy Spirit, I don't think. No indwelling Holy Spirit. So, no. but, but basically, what should the disciples have understood by now? What did the feeding of the 5,000 teach them? You can't, can't do, do it. it. Mm, 
Yeah, yeah, you can't do it. So actually, one of the things they could have done, and I'm not blaming them for this because I know that all of us would have done what they did, but what they could have done is said, he'll be back soon and he will be able to do this. And I think sometimes we have to do that in, in a different sort of way, but we have to, to say, wait, let me, let me call on the Lord. Let me ask Jesus. You know. It must have been hard for them because a bit before they were going out to yes. the commission, as yes. Mike said, yes. and, and doing these wonderful yes. acts. And so naturally when the man came to them, yes. Yeah, come on. Exactly, exactly. So what is the lesson? Because actually that's a, that's a really good point, Anne. What is the lesson for us? Because we're caught between two, two things, aren't we? We're caught between, I know that Christ is in me and that I should, I should be just trusting and believing that he's going to do it. And then the other thing which says, I can't do anything unless Christ is I'm in that middle place. And half of me wants to totally have faith because I'm afraid not having faith will, will spoil things. And the other half of me is, is saying, no, no, wait on Jesus. Because, so, but the thing is, they must fit together. They must fit. It's just I need to find how they fit. So do I believe that Jesus can do all things at all times? Yes, I do. Do I believe that he will do all things at all times through me? No, I don't. He won't do that. He's not going to heal everybody I pray for. He's not. It's I believe, help thou my unbelief. Yes, but it's, going on all the time, it is, it? it is that, but it's also the recognition that my belief is actually nothing. Mm. My faith is nothing in this scenario. It's only Christ who can heal. It's only Christ who can cast out demons. It's only Christ who can save. It's my, it's my trust that he can do that. So I can build my faith up and build it up and build it up. I can go to some concerts and raise my arms. I can come into this wonderful place of power and victory in my mind. And I can stir up a storm. And, but actually, that's nothing if he doesn't show up. If he doesn't do it, I'm stuck. See, we've got more of an advantage than the disciples in the sense that we do have the Holy Spirit. With yes, of course. And we can listen to his prompting. Yes. Um, or if only we could always hear. Yes. <laughs> or if only, yes. You know, now do it. Yes. In my name. Or yes. No, don't. Wait. Do yes. Exactly. Yeah. At, but I think it's the attitude behind the waiting, behind the doing. It's the it's the recognition that I can do nothing yes. without Him, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's waiting for the strengthening and waiting for Him to show me yeah. where and when and um, yeah. you know. But it is that, it's that submission and that surrender to the will of the Father. We rush around like headless chickens, thinking that he's going to heal everybody we lay hands on. Well, I, I know you don't, but some people do. But that's not true. Because God sees a picture beyond our picture. He sees the whole of a life. He sees all the ramifications of that life. And, and what, what would happen? We were having a conversation about that today. And, you know, um, and only because it's my example and so I can freely say it. I was saying, you know, why, does my, why did my daughter die? You know, why? Why did my baby die? I mean, there are millions of babies born on that day. Why mine four months later? Why did she have to die? No, but what I'm saying is I could, I could kind of 
think to myself, well, if, if God had wanted to, he could have healed her. And he should have healed her. She was four months old, for goodness sake. She hadn't done anything yet. She should, he should have healed her. And he didn't. But the thing that I've come to realize is, I'm a different person because she didn't, she didn't live. She went straight to be with him. So, oh, but he knew my life. He knew what might have happened. He knew my marriage and my family and my... And he knew the children that would come after. And he knew how I would be if a better mother, if, if that had happened to me. How I would be a better wife if that had happened to me. He knew the end from the beginning. That's what I'm trying to say. So when we're saying our God is a healing God, he is. But he doesn't necessarily heal in the way and at the time we want him to do that because he has the big picture he has the big picture. You know, Michelle, I'm looking at you nodding. At, I, you know. The thing is, that's the reality. So for us to come on in our, in our kind of, well, I know a God who heals and he's going to change this situation and just have enough faith and just pray hard enough and, and all my lovely Christian friends, we'll all come around you and we'll pray and it'll all be wonderful. That just is a travesty of the reality of God. He's bigger than I, we can even think. He has so many things going on at one time and all of them good so we do him a disservice and we denigrate him if we come and expect him to do what we think he should do at any moment just because he can and that's what Luke's showing us do you really trust Jesus will you really trust him because in order to trust him things are not going to turn out the way you think they should always no the way that you might choose. They're going to turn out in a different way. And it stops us getting puffed up. And yes. Yeah. There's a wonderful book, Reese Howell's Intercessor, yeah. and that shows me, showed me after my husband died, just, you know, how we can be um, presumptuous almost yes. in thinking God's going to do. Yes. Yes. Just what you're yes. saying, you just have to wait and see yes. who wants to do or if. If, and also to, to, to be able to do that, you must already have decided God is good yes. and he is for me mm. and he will only ever do what's best for me. But that has to have happened before. Yes. Otherwise, you just, you can't cope with these things. No. There's no way. Mm. So, um, yeah, so, so many things in that little vignette, really, of the demonic boy, and, but so many things for us to learn, I think, about what it is to be a believer, what it is to follow Christ. Mm. He's going to go on and say that he's going to be, well, he's already said about his suffering, that he's going to be handed over. We will suffer as Christ's disciples. I think the biggest suffering that you and I will probably ever have to go through is the suffering that comes from us subduing and submitting our own will to his, mm. to be honest. I think that that's the hardest thing. Every other type of suffering, apart from persecution, is common to man. Mm. You know, death, sickness, disaster. Everybody's suffering from those things. So our suffering comes in different ways. It comes from persecution, direct persecution, and it also comes from our battle with our own flesh mm. and the enemy who comes at us. Um, so we've had trust, we've had suffering, because he tells them about him having to go to a cross and they then have to follow him. And then um, uh, verse 46 to 50. Could someone read those verses, please? Um, verse 46 to 50. Oh, sorry, no, let's go back just a little bit. From verse 43 to verse 48, please. 
43 to 48. But while everyone was marvelling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them, so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. I know, on a bit please, to um, 48, please. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is the great, who is great. Thank you. I think this is so interesting, this little thing, because he's just told them about his own suffering. He's, he's, he says to them in verse 44, again, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And because they don't understand it, John reverts immediately to a theological um, problem, you know, an argument, well, sorry, not yet, but an argument started among them as to which one would be the greatest. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Which one would be the greatest? I mean, these disciples have just seen amazing miracles. They've seen that they couldn't feed the 5,000, that the disciples couldn't cast out the demons. They've seen all of this, and suddenly it's all about them. And that's so much like us. It is so much. I mean, you know, which one of us then, Lord, here tonight is the greatest? I mean, who's doing the most? Whose faith is the strongest? Who's used by you most? And what's Jesus' answer? We know his answer. What's his answer? You've got to become like children. Which they actually um, <clears throat> don't really want to hear. I think partly because this is not their image of themselves. I mean, after all, they're the ones who know he's the Messiah. They've followed him. They're, they know what they're doing. Um, uh, whoever receives me receives him who sent me for the one who is least among all of you this is the one who is great so the upside down world that we now inhabit no I don't think so and then John um, because not understanding I think because he doesn't fully understand master we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us but Jesus said to him do not hinder him for he who is not against you is um, is for you. Um, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers um, on ahead of him and they went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, but they did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went along to another village. This is not a great um, time in their lives, their understanding. They're not being shown in very good light. But um, what do you think about these things? What, what do you think? I mean, the, who's the greatest? Jesus turns upside down. So humility is an essential Mm. essential of um, discipleship and that will come it does come to them these disciples are humble by the end of their time with Jesus 
and when they receive the spirit later, they, they live lives of humility, actually. And um, so it does come to them. They are transformed in that way. Um, and so the purpose, I think we talked about purpose, which is our, uh, his purpose being our purpose becomes a characteristic. What does Jesus have to tell them his purpose is? I mean, what did they want to do with the people who were doing stuff that they thought they shouldn't have? Exactly. Let's zap them all, Lord. Let's just get rid of them. And I do wonder about that a little bit. We're going to finish now because um, it's getting late. But and what's our heart's desire? What is the purpose of your life as a believer in the Lord Jesus? What is your aim, your ambition? To serve Him. To serve Him, and how? For our will not to be contrary to his. Yes, and how does how, what's your goal? What's your pur- not your in, what? What's the mission? What's your purpose on earth? To make disciples. To make disciples. To make disciples. Your purpose yes. is not to be screaming at people. You should believe, otherwise you're going to be zapped. <laughs> you should believe, otherwise you're going straight to hell. If you don't walk my walk, oh my goodness, you are in major trouble. That's not what Jesus came to do. He came to save. He came to heal. He came to to deliver. And we have a church full of people, or not full of people, because we have loads of people who are totally apathetic and don't even believe hell exists. And then we have other people who are posting on on Facebook all the time these terrible hellfire and damnation things. Mm -hmm. I wonder who they think is going to read those things and what they think they're going to accomplish. What are they going to accomplish from that? Now, I'm not saying that we, we don't work on, on the knowledge that hell is a place that exists, but what's the truth about everybody who is unbelieving? And you were all unbelieving at one point, so what was the truth about you in terms of hell? Oh, we're lost. We're not you lost. were lost. Yes. Lost. What does the word lost mean? Well, without hope, without despair. Yes. Without if, if you could describe the road you were on, what road were you on? Destruction. You were on the road to destruction. Did you know you were? No. 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 When did you know you were? Afterwards. Jesus had to show us. When you were found. Yeah, when you were found, when someone told you about Jesus. Yeah. What was that in essence? I mean, a, a picture is, the picture is that the whole world, everybody in it, is on this road that leads to hell. They didn't deliberately put themselves on that road. They are actually on that road because they belong to mankind and that's where mankind is going. So it's not that God picked them up, okay, at birthright, I'll have you, and you'll go on the hell road. And you, no, no, not you, you're going to go on this other road. Every single human being is born in sin, is born into the line of Adam, him being the representative head, so Adam and Eve, into the line of mankind. And they are all on a road that leads to destruction. And the only reason you and I are off that road is because Christ called your name. And he kept calling your name through people. And he kept calling you and calling you and calling you until one day you heard his voice and you took his hand and he took you off that road. It's not because you were good. It's not because you were better than anybody else. It's that he kept on calling and kept on calling and you heard his voice. And by some miracle, you took his hand. That's what we should be preaching to people. Jesus is standing at the side of your road and he is running along the side and he is calling your name because you don't want to go where you're headed. 
I'm, I'm not saying we need to say that all the time, but that's their attitude. These people are, they are in desperate trouble. They're lost. They don't know they're lost. They're blind, but they think they see. They think they're happy, but they have no understanding of what happiness is. They think they're alive, but they're dead. And the only one who can make a difference to that is Jesus. And he is the one calling through you and me. But he calls the loudest when you live like this, when you trust, when you're prepared to, to put up a fight against your human self, when you're prepared to suffer, when you're pre prepared to think about yourself as lower than everybody else, when you decide that his purpose is your purpose. So I started by saying these things are, will happen in you, you're not going to choose them, and I'm finishing by saying that you're going to choose them, and there's the Christian life. There's the Christian life. God will do it, but you must choose it. Cheer us up, no end, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're on a road which is headed for glory. You're on the highway of holiness. How amazing that is. Yeah, How amazing that strong. is. Hey? But the battles yeah, strong. the battles are strong, but the power is, is there. The Lord has promised victory. Yes, He's promised victory. Amen. But yeah, the best things in life don't come easy. An easy yeah, life leads to, you know... Yeah. So, Father, thank you that um, thank you that you do make it clear, really, in in this wonderful gospel, um, how you want us to live, and how important it is actually for us and for those around us, and and how desperately we need you, Lord Jesus, and that we can't really do anything on our own. We know that in our minds, Lord, but <coughs> help us to really take that in and 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 figure out all the ramifications of that in the details of our lives. Help us, Lord, to surrender in the details, to, to really pick up our cross every day and choose to live your world rather than our own. And Father, we know that we can't even do that without your help. And so we thank you, I thank you so much, that you are a God who makes good on his promises and that you will enable us to live this way. You will enable us, as Jude says, to stand before you blameless with great joy. And I thank you so much, Father, that, um, that you will do that. And we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.